2: Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Believe it or not, this is the 1500th episode of the History Extra podcast. So many thanks to all of you who've joined us over the years. We'd love to hear from you about how long you've been listening and what your favourite episodes have been. So please do tweet us at History Extra or send us an email at podcast at historyextra.com. And we may well give you a shout out in a future episode. And if you want to keep up with everything we're doing in the future, check out our podcast club page at historyextra.com forward slash pod club. There, we bring you sneak peeks from behind the mic at History Extra and suggest some fascinating further reading on some of the topics that we discuss. Plus, you can submit your burning questions for our Everything You Wanted to Know series and sign up to our free podcast newsletter where I bring you a bunch of new content to explore every two weeks. Anyway, to mark this milestone of 1500 historical conversations, we thought it would be interesting to look back at a fascinating year when the global balance of power was shifting, 1500 AD. To take us on a whistle-stop tour of the world in that year, I spoke to historian Jerry Broughton, Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary University of London and the author of books including A History of the World in 12 Maps. 1500's an interesting year, isn't it, Jerry? Because it's often tagged by historians, or at least it was in, in my history degree, as the end of the medieval era and the beginning of what historians like to call the early modern era. But did that distinction really mean anything in reality?
3: Well, yes and no, I think it does for us as historians to try and sort of make categories and try and sort of work out big historical changes and shifts, but even to use the date 1500, may I say, because we talk about AD, and of course, you've got a world picture in 1500 where people are using different calendars. So we're already talking about the diversity of a world which can't just be divided between, say, a medieval period, which ends around 1400, and to an early modern, or what we used to call the Renaissance, which also has its problems, because of course, it's a French term that means rebirth, rebirth of classical culture and civilization. Civilization around that period, but only in Europe. So we've got a a huge range of different cultures, different societies, different practices going on around 1500. And I think that the notion of just moving from medieval to early modern is a bit meaningless. It, it, It starts a conversation, but it shouldn't be the end. It should be a way of then saying, well, what do we mean by medieval? We probably mean that's something that's happening in Europe, but We're not thinking about the Americas there, are we? We're not thinking about China, which might have different notions of radical change in culture and society, which happen at different times, uh, historically speaking. So it's a good start, but just start from there, don't end there, and don't put too much emphasis on these labels of periodization, because we tend, as historians, to want to unravel them and complicate them anyway.
0: Yes, indeed. And as you say, there's a huge amount of different stuff going on at this time. If we picked any year in world history, we'd really struggle in one conversation to cover all of it, I think it's fair to say. But hopefully we can give listeners an introduction to some of the key themes that were going on in 1500. So to start us off, to kick us off, Jerry, can you give us a really broad sense of how the world looked in 1500?
3: It's primarily an agrarian world still, so people you're know, working on the land. Um, you've got increasingly sedentary societies though so from a period where you have nomadic cultures and societies across the americas and in eurasia and in africa that's starting to change um you've got people practicing a range of different beliefs monotheistic beliefs judaism islam christianity but also still polytheistic beliefs in places like the americas um the center of global power, I'd say, in this period, sits in what you might call Eurasia. So, you know, really the the, the sort of easternmost boundaries of Europe into Central Asia. That's really where the great uh, agrarian power lies. It's where emerging imperial powers lie. Of course, that is a world, Europe, Africa, and Asia, which still has no connection as yet to the Americas. So, the Americas are very much a, a different space altogether. But by 1500, there has been in that encounter uh, predominantly through europe um and with columbus in 1492 so you've got um Again, it depends on your perspective. You know, if you're a labourer in China in 1500, your world picture is predominantly about your village, your community, uh, your agrarian life. But if you're a merchant in Istanbul or Constantinople, uh, as it was called at that time, your world looks much wider. It looks much more cosmopolitan. You've got the meeting point of so many different emerging powers as powers are becoming centred in particular imperial centres. You've got the Ottoman Empire you've got the Safavid Persian Empire, you've got the Timurid and the Chinese Ming imperial powers all jostling for for precedence in that central Eurasian space. Europe at this point is trying to emerge as a world power with competing empires within it as well, but is very much on the sideline of that world picture, just beginning to sort of, as it were, a phrase that we use is a, a form of outreach we used to call it discovery, but these connections and these explorations and these meeting points that the Europeans are starting to venture out into the Atlantic and into the Indian Ocean. So it gives you a sort of sense of, 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 of how things are changing. Yes, the rise of imperial power, points of contact, but still for many societies and many people, very much based on you know people never going really beyond their village in their entire lives. Although we have changes to that that starts to happen. And, you know, that's how culture works. You you have dominant forms of agrarian, very settled life, emergent forms of travel, uh, exploration and trade and exchange. So there's always that sort of jostling that gives you a sort of sketch, I think, of what what things are looking like if you dropped onto the planet in 1500, if you came from Mars.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really helpful overview. So let's take a look at some of those areas of the globe in a bit more depth. Now, you mentioned there the importance of Eurasia in this period. What were some of the the dominant forces? Could you tell us a bit more about them? Some of the the big states or empires which were really making hay in fifteen hundred.
3: Well, the big the big sort of points of contact are really between uh, the empires to the east, so China, the the Ming Dynasty, uh, which. Uh, is in power by the mid-14th century and will run until the 17th century. Um, And then you've got the rise of Islam, particularly moving east and westwards. So a kind of collision there that's happening within which you've got many other sort of smaller competing dynasties. So you've got uh, the Timurid uh, dynasty, again, in central Eurasia, which comes out of Genghis Khan, um, and that tradition of, again, a much more nomadic imperial culture, which is very much always on the move. But increasingly, you're getting these big empires which are centering themselves um, on imperial administrative centers like the Ming Dynasty. And increasingly, then, uh, the rise of the Ottoman Empire. So by the time that the Ottomans' uh, Sunni Muslim Empire uh, reaches Constantinople and takes it from the Byzantine uh, Orthodox Empire, Imperial power. You've got a situation where you've got these two huge powers within which you've still got emergent um, Islamic uh, empires. So you've got the uh, uh, in in India, for instance, you've got the uh, Delhi Sultanate, which is the first great Islamic empire in India. And across all those emerging empires, of course, trade and exchange is going on. So the Indian Ocean is a a huge meeting point for all those different cultures and dynasties in that Eurasian landmass. But again, the Pacific and the Atlantic are very much not in play at this point in time, nor, of course, are Europe.
0: Historians often talk about... Europe on the one hand and then the Islamic world on the other at this time. Is that a helpful way of looking at this? Was there a certain amount of coherence between Islamic states and empires or were they all fairly distinct entities that maybe are not that helpfully termed as one big Islamic world?
3: I think that's a good point because we talk about the Islamic world. Well, of course, as historians, we tend not to talk about the Christian world and just lump it all together. So you've also got a conflict between, say, the Sunni uh, Ottoman Empire and the Safavid Persian Shia Empire. Um, You've also got other uh, competing states even within and under that rubric of Islam. So as with Christianity, it's a dynamic and fluid movement as Islam continues to expand and the center of that empire moves from places like Baghdad and through contested centres like Cairo and eventually coming to Istanbul, Constantinople, as the Ottomans take precedence as the great Islamic empire. But that's not without conflict. It's not without change. Um, So, you know, the sheer range of what you're talking about, Islamic belief or even political authority, is massively different if it ranges from, say, Morocco in the west to as far as India and even beyond into Southeast Asia, even by 1500. The, The you know, the expansion of islam in this period is like wildfire it's quite extraordinary um in contrast to the, the development of any other religious belief that's tied to imperial power much more dynamic certainly than christianity is in this period
0: mm. but if we do turn to christianity and christian europe in this period who were some of the dominant forces and the key players in europe at this
3: time well, we think about Christianity and we think about the papacy, but the papacy, even by the mid-15th century, um, is very weak. It's very divided. Um they've only just unified the idea of the papacy uh, within Rome. There's been competing factions, different popes throughout the earlier periods. So once it's centred um, in Rome, you're then seeing that Christianity is still very fractured because you've got a lot of Republican city-states, of course, famously Florence with the Medici, uh, but Venice as well. You've got the rise of uh, France becoming an imperial power and again becoming centralised around its administration. The Tudors, I should say, you know, at the end of the 15th centuries they're being to emerge, are way, way on the margins here. They're, they're not really big players, in, even in that European uh, game of power politics. So you've got the rise of these city-states, which start to coalesce into empires as we understand them today. You know, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French. The Italians aren't, because the Italian city-states are so divided at this time um, and are all in conflict with each other. And this is even prior To the Reformation of the early 16th century, which of course fractures Christianity as never before, where you get the split between Catholicism and Protestantism. But even circa 1500, you've got Europe as a, a very small, very divided, very conflicted space, again, predominantly agricultural, but starting to look outwards because it needs new markets, you know, it's post the, the, great, uh, the Great Black Death of the 14th century, um, which leads to all kinds of economic changes. And there is a need to see new markets, new trade. And that's really why Europe starts to expand and encounter these other great cultures and civilizations, not as an equal, but because they're trying to really reach out and, and enrich themselves. And they know that they are bit players in a much bigger global picture.
0: And of course, this is just a few years after Columbus's journey to the Americas. Was the impact of that being felt by 1500, both in the Americas and in Europe?
3: By 1500, you're starting to see the sort of slow impact and a realisation of the significance of Columbus's first voyage um, to the Americas. Of course, it's slow. We tend to look back and think, oh, 1492, well, it must have had an immediate impact not as great as we might think people are still unsure about you know what those discoveries are that it is a new continent what the people are that are encountered there in those communities and what they represent but certainly as we look back we can see it really is a significant moment particularly for europe because the encounter with the americas and particularly the wealth that starts flowing back into Europe, particularly from silver and to some extent gold, but mainly silver, is enormous. And even by 1500, you're starting to see uh, an embrace of uh, the transatlantic slave trade that, of course, becomes infamous in subsequent centuries and that's also based on earlier traditions throughout Africa and Asia, where that, there have been the practices of slavery, which the European powers then realise that they need to action if they want to really start making a, a multinational business of what they discover in the Americas. So it is significant, and you know many many historians talk about that impact, and it, I, I think increasingly we see how powerful it is across so many things, across you know our understandings of religion, because the the Bible. can't can't comprehend the notion of another continent like uh, America. Um, The food that we eat that comes back into Europe, obviously, the riches that flow back in, the new sort of practices, sadly, particularly around slavery. So it transforms everything and really begins the the ascent of Europe as a global power. um, Because they're able to draw on what's happening in the Americas in a way that, of course, the big land-based Eurasian empires like the Ottomans and even the Chinese, who, of course, have been involved in exploration and discovery um, in the earlier 15th century, but then turn away from it and look inwards they're not able just by dint of geography to cash in on that trade with the Americas at this time. So Europe's geography is really its destiny because it faces outwards to the Atlantic. Um, And so by 1500, you are starting to see that impact, that enrichment of the continent because of what they can extract and is very much an extractive slave-based economy in the Americas.
0: So it's clearly a transformative time. Can you give us a sense of the Americas at this moment in which it, it, it essentially stood on a precipice, an era of transformation was was coming. But if we'd have visited the Americas in 1500, what kind of civilizations or communities might we have encountered?
3: Well, you're mainly looking at the the two, the two great civilizations um, in the Americas are the Aztecs in central America, or Mexico. And the Inca, which are usually associated with Peru, but generally northern Mesoamerica. You know, again, highly organised agrarian uh, cultures uh, with polytheistic beliefs, uh, of, you know, sacrificial cultures. Um, so their, their whole sort of process is very different. And of course, the Spanish particularly are trying to understand what they're seeing and generally, of course, quite shocked. And they're trying to understand those cultures and beliefs in terms of what they've seen in Europe. And often you see that the Aztecs and the Inca are sort of strangely compared to Muslim communities in, in Europe, because that's the only way they can try and sort of understand what's going on. Um, but, of course, very wealthy, very organised societies. It may not be something that within European traditions we see as ones we want to valorize around its sacrificial culture. Um, but they are ones that, of course, uh, have certain issues, like they don't have gunpowder and they don't have horses around ca- and cavalry, which, of course, is what the Spanish bring. So despite the sophistication of those cultures, they are quickly being wiped Wiped out by the Europeans, particularly the Spanish, and of course the biggest thing that they bring, which is the great downfall of the Aztecs and the Inca, are um, a disease and the way in which disease then absolute decimates those cultures. So scholars who work in that area have real problems because a lot of what survives um, is of course written from the spanish perspective and it's difficult to to therefore recreate because we don't have the archives really left within those cultures so um, it can be pieced together but yeah it's the difference is, is extraordinary, the, the notion that the Americas for so long have been really developing culturally, completely isolated from what we call the old world, Europe, Africa and Asia. It's a, it is a completely different world. Why, and why, of course, people like Columbus um, – well, Columbus is interesting because, of course, he doesn't want to believe that he's discovered a new continent. He's trying to get to China. But the way in which, again, by 1,500, people are using the language of the new world – Um, and even the idea of America is a term which doesn't develop until later in the 16th century.
0: You say that Columbus was searching for China and didn't want to believe he'd discovered a new continent, but how did news of this go down back in Europe?
3: It's divided. Um, The great conduit of this, of course, is print, and that's uh, a big deal in terms of saying the the impact of these ideas, and prior to that, when you've got a primarily uh, manuscript-based world picture. The Chinese have print, but it's circulated. It's That's a different, more complex story. But the development of movable print in Europe um, from the mid-15th uh, century means that when Columbus returns from his first voyage in 1492, there is a circulation of news about this new discovery. So there is a lot more chatter, and it moves much, much quicker than you might expect in terms of people trying to assess and understand what is this place, what are we calling it, the new world. Is it part of China? Is it an island? Is it a separate continent? and the scholars around this time and people are making maps are endlessly trying out new ideas to try and work out what this new place means and what it means of course for Europe and the impact you know is, is so profound you know across religion, across you know, cultural expectations senses of what, what humanity is who are these societies that we've no idea and we don't understand any of their beliefs and practices so the, the impact is increasingly profound and significant just in terms of as it were the mental world picture never mind what's actually happening on the ground
0: still to come on the history extra podcast
3: and talking about african cultures and societies again is something that's starting to emerge and those are huge huge uh players but have been forgotten because we tend to look at our world picture from a western europe perspective
1: Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed
2: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
0: I wonder if we could turn now to Africa. What can you tell us about the balance of power on the continent? in 1500.
3: Africa, of course, is, is one of the the great um, unknowns in many respects, also because of this issue of surviving archival records. So it's, it's difficult often to work out what's going on there. So we're, we're looking at the work of archaeologists and anthropologists who are often talking about if you were in Africa in 1500, what would you discover? Well, we know that the Portuguese are already encountering African uh, cultures and societies. They've been doing that since the 1420s, hopping down the west coast of Africa and getting around the Cape of Good Hope um, in 1488, as Diaz does, and then Vasco de Gama goes in 1497. But it's very coastal and it's very superficial. Um, what they're encountering are, again, very sophisticated uh, cultures like the Kingdom of Benin in modern-day Nigeria, which will resonate, I'm sure, for, for listeners in terms of debates about the Benin Bronzes, because what the Portuguese discover is a culture which is Rich in its sort of cultural and artistic heritage um, and in terms of producing the Benin bronzes, many of the Portuguese say, you know, this must have been Europeans who arrived before. Surely these people can't have been doing that. Well, actually, no, because you've got a very extensive network of kingdoms uh, throughout this period in Africa. And again, it's a bit like saying Europe, you know, we'd we'd obviously define it in terms of Florence, Venice, London, Paris. And increasingly, I think we should be doing that with Africa. And of course, what's going on in West Africa in somewhere like the Kingdom of Benin is massively different from what's happening in somewhere like Mali. And Mali, one of the great, uh, what we might call early modern kingdoms run by the Sultan Musa, um, who is in charge of the Trans-Saharan Gold Route um, across Northwest Africa, going all the way in into East Africa, and then into markets further into Southeast Asia. You've also got sub-Saharan kingdoms like the Kingdom of Mozambique. um, And these are sometimes connected to each other, sometimes not. Uh, And again, they're predominantly agrarian societies. But we're starting to see that, again, there's a dynamism in africa and its different competing kingdoms which are very different say northwest africa to what they are in east africa and in sub-saharan africa but they all start to have points of contact with these other uh, societies and empires so with the portuguese even with the chinese in the mid-15th century there are there is trade and exchange that's going on it's just It's hard to find it, and we just haven't been looking closely enough because we've tended to just freeze out Africa, and I think that that's for very specific Western colonial imperial reasons. And there's very exciting work that's being done on that to to say now, yeah, you know, there's a lot going on um, that we need to try and understand and put back into that world picture circa 1500.
0: You mentioned earlier about this this era seeing the origins of the transatlantic slave trade. Could you explain a bit more about how that was established?
3: What the Spanish realised quite quickly after Columbus's voyage to the Americas is that there is this extraordinary, for them, untapped market in precious metals, particularly silver and gold. So the bullion required to really kickstart an sort of international uh, European explosion. Uh, of economic sort of growth um, needs a labour force because what the Spanish also start to see is that the impact of European diseases are decimating uh, the indigenous population. So they need a a source of labour. Well, the Spanish and the Portuguese have already been getting involved in a slave trade which is established to some extent in Africa throughout uh, the early centuries. So what they realise is that they can uh, transport African slaves across the Atlantic primarily from West Africa, uh, where they're already trading, into the Americas. And around this time in 1500, the Spanish start to enact legislation which says this is okay, Um, and it's couched in religious language to say, well, these people are not believers, um, so it's somehow okay. There's debates about it. I mean, other other Spanish commentators say, you know, "This this is bad, we shouldn't be doing it, but it is the beginning of what becomes obviously a massive trade Um, sadly, in humans across the Atlantic. It's small at this stage, but it's nevertheless, it is established. And uh, historians of slavery would always really start their story in terms of European involvement in slavery around this time and with the Americas and what happens. And sadly, we know the consequences of that history all too well.
0: So we've mentioned Ming Dynasty China. What else was happening in Asia at this time?
3: Well, Asia, around these, the, these competing imperial powers, um, in terms of uh, the Ming in China, the various uh, Islamic powers, uh, Sunni and Shia, you know, control of the pilgrimage routes to Mecca, which is a, a huge issue for those competing Islamic empires. And then also trading, of course, across the Indian Ocean. So this becomes a really significant source space in terms of how uh, multinational trade goes on in this period. So a lot of the collisions are also around sea and around those kinds of trading areas. Uh, Once the Portuguese and the Spanish and then later the English and the Dutch come into that massive sort of maritime marketplace, that's really when I think things start to get global in terms of exchange as we start to happen. So then you've got the Spanish who are trading through the Americas and sending galleons, they're called the Manila galleons, which are really pretty much circulating uh, bullion and goods right around the globe, so through the Americas, through China, back into Europe. And that really starts in this period, you know, from 1500, you start to see that that shift, you start to see a much more mobile uh, world picture and these economies, which have been very much driven by maritime trade and exchange, and Europe comes into that quite late. You know, those those practices have been established for for several centuries, as many historians are now beginning to understand. So it's land based imperial power in Eurasia, but it's also being driven by maritime trade and exchange and the movement of goods and commodities, which you know touch through Africa, yes, Southeast Asia getting into the Pacific. And, you know, as the century progresses, also drawing in America in terms of being a part of that global economy as well.
0: Mm, from what we've discussed, it sounds like this was a moment in which the world was was really very interconnected. Is that fair?
3: I think it is. I think that many historians, and I'd be somebody who would talk about, if you want to discuss the, the Birth Or even the development of globalization, people will predate it even before 1500. But I think it's a moment where you get a connectedness across all the different continents where America is then part of that story in a way that it hasn't been before. And that you've got um, long distance uh, maritime navigation, you've got the Chinese, you've got the Portuguese, the Spanish, who are able to sail thousands of miles, developments in uh, technological innovations, which allow you um, to sail across those kind of distances. And once you get that, you get connections, usually through very specific Uh, ports, ports, the, these sort of nodal points in an emerging global economy, you know, which are about places like Lisbon, um, you know, they're about places, um, in, across Southeast Asia, islands like the Moluccas tiny little islands but they produce spices and they're starting to flow around the entire globe so you start to get merchants being connected through these nodal points in what i would definitely say is an emerging global economy and you can see a level of interconnectedness which if you were then to go forward to the next big uh date line which would be 1600 the 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 growth is 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 off the chart in terms of those kind of connections from what it was in 1500 um which is already starting to emerge but by 1600 i think that you know many historians i think would say you've pretty much got a global uh, economic society uh that's in play
0: and is there anywhere that we haven't mentioned yet that you think is worth noting at this point
3: well, it is interesting that the, as, as the field changes and people start to, to do more what you might call early modern global history, um, I think that there are other places which start to become very significant. So you think about, uh, for very good reasons at the moment, if you talk about Russian imperial history and you talk about the building of a recognisably Russian um, state um, in the 15th and early 16th century, which again is a huge, huge empire, um, which tends to be overlooked because now we tend to look at and be interested in those collisions, say, between Islam and Christianity. And we know that the Ming uh, Chinese dynasty is, is there and is also part of that story. Um, and talking about African cultures and societies, again, is something that's starting to emerge. And those are huge, huge uh, players but have been forgotten because we tend to look at our world picture from a Western Europe perspective. And even if we make it Eurasian, we tend to forget some of those uh, empires and the the nomadic empires that are on the move. And it's very difficult for us to assess. So we talk about Genghis Khan, but and there has been work done on that. And I think that that's changed uh, the Tir- Timurid dynasty, Tamerlane the Great, They are nomadic dynasties, and people like Anthony Satin has just written a rather good book about uh, nomads and nomadic culture, but talking about the difficulty of being able to, as it were, pin them down quite literally. So I think as research collaboratively goes on across different cultures we'd start to say that those other spaces and places like central african kingdoms like russia are also part of this story Um, and it will only just complicate and i think in a positive way the way in which we see that global world picture circa 1500
0: It's become very clear in this conversation that it's going to be pretty impossible to generalise about things happening in the world in 1500. But I did want to return to that issue of the Renaissance. Obviously, this is traditionally seen as pretty much in the middle of the Renaissance, but that's a fairly European concept, this idea of a flowering of arts and thinking. Did societies beyond Europe experience something similar?
3: I mean, if we think about Renaissance in that French term of rebirth, um, which is what it's classically referred to in terms of Europe in the 15th century, and it's focused on places like Florence uh, and the other city states which are producing this outpouring of art and uh, literature, Renaissances, in that sense, I think, happen globally uh, across the world. Um, so we could talk about the way in which West Africa is probably um, suddenly expanding and its cultural uh, flowering is is changing um, in the in the late fourteenth, early fifteenth century. Uh, François Xavier Favel writes this great book called The Golden Renaissance, which is histories of, of what he calls the African Middle Ages. And again, of course, the problem is he's saying there's no such thing as the Middle Ages if you're in Africa in in fourteen fifty or even 1550. 15- so you experience uh, cultural and artistic change in different ways. I mean, we talk about Islam um, in the earlier periods, that great flowering um, in Baghdad of the uh, of the centre of the caliphate, which has an outpouring of, of artistic and scientific learning. Which I guess, if we were Defining the Renaissance as this sudden rebirth of culture and civilization and, uh, and art is absolutely happening. You'd say it about the Ming Empire in its early stages. So the term starts to become meaningless if you refer to it simply as europe in the 15th century because different cultures have different moments of that and even within people who talk about the european renaissance people will say well you know there's a sort of 13th century brief flowering in europe so the term becomes slightly meaningless but not if you're thinking globally you can identify certain points where uh, states or empires have this sudden uh, flowering if you like that phrase is used a lot Um, and then things change things close down The Ottomans, just after Mehmet the Conqueror takes Constantinople in 1453, the city is rebuilt using Jewish, Armenian, Christian artists, architects, scholars, merchants. There is, as it were, a renaissance at that point, but we've tended to ignore it because we want to think of that as a period of, you know, barbarity. I think that's being revised now, but that sense in which the Ottomans are leading some kind of renaissance at that point, and it's very much done uh, according to Islamic principles. So we need to just be really careful about the way in which we, we use that term. And as you've indicated, we tend to now think of the term early modern, um, in terms of the the wider historical development of modernity rather than renaissance and you tend to see i think if people use that term they are being rather eurocentric so whenever i hear a book or somebody is using the term renaissance i immediately feel a bit skeptical about it because as we've been talking about the global history in this period would say hang on a minute um, it's not just something which is Defined in Europe, and nor does it make Europe exceptional and why it becomes, you know, one of the great imperial powers in subsequent centuries.
0: I'll just throw a couple more questions at you, I reckon, because otherwise we're going to be here forever and um, because there's too much to talk about. But um, we've spoken a lot in this conversation about empire building, global migration, big dynasties. But are there any individual figures that you think are worth highlighting in the year 1500?
3: It's a really good question because it it throws you back onto really basic historical principles, doesn't it? That you think about the great key players. So you think about the great emperors, you think about uh, the Ottoman sultans like uh, Bayezet, you think about um, the rise of the Habsburg emperors like Emperor Charles V, and you think of John III of Portugal. But of course, we'd also want to look at other thinkers um, who are working in this period, like the more anonymous people, printers who are driving the printing press, which is as transformative as anything else that's going on in this period. Um, So to single out people in this period, I think, is difficult. It depends again what the focus of your historical inquiry is. If you're working at a certain level of imperial power, then yeah, you're looking at those key players. And the rivalries which are personal between those emperors but if you're looking at intellectual history you're thinking about the rise of humanist scholars, particular figures who are working in places like Florence. Of course this is a time when you've got people like Leonardo who's doing um, his artistic and scientific work in Florence but you're also thinking of then clerics like Savonarola who's completely transforming uh, Florence as a city-state and collapses. So it depends where you want to put your focus and the great names that we could all mention, yes, are important, but I think the fine-grained history that many of us want to also do to really bring the period alive would identify other figures, perhaps lesser-known figures, who are also driving changes in science, changes obviously in art, but also changes in technology uh, and science.
0: So I think my final question to you is, if you had a time machine set to 1500, the year 1500, where would you choose to go? What would you want to witness?
3: If I could go back, I would go to what is now Istanbul, Constantinople in 1500, because it seems to me it's, it's very much at the centre of what's happening globally I think it's at the centre of a a sort of dynamic shift in terms of what uh, Islamic belief is doing and also culturally, because it's obviously controlled by the Ottomans, but it's an absolute hub. It's a meeting point of East and West. It's where artistic traditions from China are coming in. It's where trade is going North and South, as well as East and West. It's where European humanists, scholars and artists are also working um, and seeing this confluence of, of all these different different elements which are feeding in. You're even getting the impact of American trade that's dimly being perceived in Constantinople at this time. So I think if you were sitting there in 1500, you would probably have the best vantage point to be looking north, south, east and west, and to getting a real snapshot of what the world looks like at that very point.
0: That was Professor Jerry Broughton. Jerry's books include A History of the World in 12 Maps, The Renaissance, A Very Short Introduction, and This Orient Isle Elizabethan England and the Islamic World. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced
2: by Sam Leal Green.